This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking... But I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hello, and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Amy Barrett, editorial assistant at BBC Science Focus magazine, And in this week's episode, I talk to Chris Packham and his stepdaughter, Megan McCubbin. They're naturalists and conservationists and recently filmed their journey around the UK for the BBC programme Chris and Meg's Wild Summer, which you can view now on BBC iPlayer. They're also hosts on the BBC's wildlife programme, Autumn Watch, which starts on Tuesday 26th of October. Chris and Meg tell me all about the different types of wildlife I can see right here in the UK. Thank you both for joining me here today for Instant Genius. For anyone who doesn't know, hasn't had a chance to see it yet, can you just tell us a little bit about your new series, Wild Summer, and what it's all about and the roles that you two take in the series? Well, uh, it's the year of staycation. And so Megan and I thought we'd join in, but we would uh, travel around the UK with a more defined purpose in that we would be seeking out interesting aspects of its natural landscapes and the wildlife that lives in them. Returning to quite a few of the places that either I had been, she had been, or we'd been to together. So it was a chance for us to reacquaint ourselves with some familiar species, but also in a more exciting way to go some areas, you know, where neither of us have been and, and find new things. And it was it was jolly good fun. We did it in, a, in an electric vehicle. We're very keen and conscious that we need to keep our carbon footprint as low as possible when we're working these days. So across the BBC, great and bold steps are being taken to try and reduce that. So we were, we were on the trains. Uh, we weren't quite on the buses, but we were in our electric vehicle and we were hanging out in some sunny and damp car parks it was it was and most of all as megs will tell you it was good fun it looked very good fun with lots of ice cream as well it, well you have to have the occasional ice cream dotted in amongst you know i haven't grown out of that phase yet unfortunately um but no we had a lot of fun and it was something that neither chris or i had done in quite a long time is go out and explore the uk like we got the opportunity to do with the series but also we hadn't traveled around together very much recently as we had done a lot of the time we met uh, I met when I was met him when I was two years old and um, from that point we started kind of traveling all around the world going to some incredible places so we're quite used to traveling 
together in kind of you know sleeper trains buses whatever so the kind of the the small electric camper wasn't so much of a problem because we we're quite used to kind of being in enclosed spaces traveling long distances together uh bickering over the music playlist but yeah it's something that we hadn't done really properly i guess since i'd gone off to university so it was a good opportunity for us to go and you know and like most of the nation did go and explore the wonders that we have here in the uk uh, and also just you know go and have a bit of fun and I think we've all needed a bit of fun over the last you know 18 months we've all needed to kind of get away and explore and it was a great opportunity to do that. It certainly made me want to plan my own wild summer road trip next year definitely but we're kind of coming into now the colder months um is there have I missed my chance to see some UK wildlife this year? No certainly not um you know I think we, we we're tempted to think that our most productive seasons are spring and summer um, because a lot of life flourishes at that time. But during an autumn and winter, there's an enormous transition in the wildlife in, in, in the UK. We see some things leaving, of course, but an enormous amount arriving. Um, there's never a dead time of year in the wildlife calendar. There's always something going on. And as a consequence of that, there's never an excuse to stay indoors and not go out. I mean, obviously, the one handicap you might have if you choose to staycation in the wild in the winter is that there are shorter days and as we're principally diurnal animals you have less time to explore but there's still great places to go and things to see and particularly obviously in the UK our coastal regions which receive vast numbers of wildfowl and waders in in the winter can provide some spectacular you know sites that that are frankly you know rarely rivaled anywhere else on earth so you know we have a fantastic resource out there year round you just need wellies a raincoat and um and a flask full of vegan hot chocolate to to do it properly in the winter so meg if you were going to plan an autumn road trip uh where would be your top locations to go Oh, it's a difficult one because there are there are so so many i mean for me a starling memoration would have to be high on there I'd have to, yeah, have to go. for me, that's a kind of a classic sign of the, of the season. Where's the best place you've seen one of those? Oh, do you know what? It's been a long time since I've seen I was saying this recently. It's been a long time since I've seen a really good starling murmuration. A really, really long time. Um, so that's defi- that is actually high up on my list of things to go and see. Uh, this year, that's for sure. The New York, the New York, we live in the South Coast, don't we, in Southampton, New Forest. So for us, the closest one would either be Isle of Purbeck. There's one at um, Shell Bay. Um, then, of course, there's the Brighton one along the coast. If you want to go further afield, the one at Aberystwyth is pretty spectacular. There's another one at Lake Moss. I mean, they, they occur all around the country, but like Meg says, sometimes not in the abundance they did in the past. But it's a question of, you know, finding your local murmuration. I have to say the one in Southampton that, that we used to go to has dwindled now and it's more of a merm. It, there's not enough for the ocean. So it's, it's, it's just a little merm of a few hundred birds. But to really see them in, in their greatest finery, you need a few thousand. But, yeah, the best thing to do is check online, find out where your, where your local murmuration is. Definitely. I'm tempted by Aberystwyth because last year we were covering Aberystwyth and the watches and there was an amazing, amazing thing with a, an owl coming in to, to you know, take on a, a catch a starling, which was incredible. A barn owl came in and it was we didn't know how it got there into the city centre. It was amazing kind of mystery. So maybe I have to go to Aberystwyth here. Obviously, deer rutting season is pretty spectacular. And if you get up early enough, if you, you know, live in the city centre, you don't have to worry. Even in London, you just go into Richmond Park and you've got that famous group of deers there. But, you know, ev- everywhere you can go and see red deer rutting. And that is quite an amazing spectacle 
um, you know, with the males and they start booming, bellowing and everything. Um, and particularly if you get up early, that's the time to do it. Get up early, get out in that kind of beautiful, dramatic mist, get out with that golden hour of sunshine, get your camera out, go and take some photos of deer because there are, it's a beautiful time to go and see them. And there's quite a few places where they're in parks. You mentioned Richmond based, but I've seen them in a park um, on the outskirts of Manchester. So because they are quite commonly kept in parks, Petworth in Sussex as well. So all around the country, there are deer. The benefit of these deer being that they're used to seeing people. And, and if you go into some of the more remote locations where you might think it's a more romantic place to go and watch a rut, your life's made a lot more difficult by the fact that the deer are really scared of people and they're difficult to stalk and get close to. But in Richmond, Petworth and, 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 and around our larger cities, then the, the deer are a lot tamer, makes it much easier. And there's always a, um, a tea shop there where you might get yourself a vegan hot chocolate. And of course, you know, you say that the, the days are getting shorter, but there are plenty of nocturnal animals that we can see in the UK. Absolutely, absolutely. Get a bat detector. It's one of my favourite activities. Still is. I was when I was a kid. It still is now. Um, you know, you need a bat detector. They didn't have to be super fancy. Chris has got one well, there. It's mine. It's on the desk. It's ready and it's ready ready for tonight because I'm going to be back detecting this evening. That's quite a special one that you plug into your phone um, and you download an app and it tells you exactly the species. You can hear the recording of the frequency. It gives you all the species information. It's a really clever piece of technology. But you don't have to, you know, go that far and go, you know, get get, you know, this particular device. You can get these kind of relatively simple ones where it turns the, the frequency into an audible sound so you can hear it. So there's lots of different ranges of kind of bat detectors out there. Um, that's always something I'd recommend going and doing. But yeah, at this time of the year, of course, you know, you've got foxes going, which is really always nice to see and the badgers, of course, as well. So and last night, the tawnies were going berserk here last night. Dogs were barking. It was a duet between tawny owl and poodle. Um, so yeah, they've started, you know, early this year that they're very vocal at the moment chasing their uh, youngsters out of the territory so they they want that territory the adults they want that space to themselves throughout the winter to guarantee they can get through that winter if things get tough so they've started to be very vocal at the moment driving those youngsters out and by the time we get to christmas then they'll be arguing with their neighbors about the extent and shape of that territory and again you know tawny owls are common species of owl found all over the uk including right into the hearts of our cities anywhere there's mature trees in parks they can breed and you can hear them hooting in the in the middle of glasgow the middle of birmingham or the middle of london so certainly worth listening out for the kiwik and twoo call of the male and female duetting tawny owls I have to be honest that my favourite episode from the series was actually the one that was around North Wales. Not not just because I've recently been on holiday there, but actually because I, I really couldn't get over that you two actually got on the zip wire, <laughs> um, which was a bit of a change from taking the train up Snowdon in the previous episode. Yeah, well, it was my idea, um, the zip line. I kind of suggested it because, I, and to be honest, I wasn't 100% sure whether Chris would agree to doing it or not. You know, I wasn't sure whether his adventurous streak had kind of calmed down. Turns out it hasn't. Far from it. And yes, yeah, so we turned up at, at Zip World, and it's uh, this most incredible zip line that's over this disused quarry. And essentially, you can get up to speeds of over 100 miles an hour. Um, and you can basically, it's the closest a human is ever going to get to flying like a peregrine. You know, it's the fastest zip line in the world. I think it's the second longest. 
it's you know an incredible experience. I really recommend doing it. It was only when we were driving up the slate quarry to this tiny, tiny, tiny little building far up in the distance, up in the cloud. Well, not quite up in the clouds, but very high up. Uh, did I look down and go? Did I? Did I really decide? Idea. This is quite high. And um, yeah, you have to, it's not like a typical zipline where you're in a harness at your waist. You're kind of in a sling where you're lying down. So you're facing downwards and they kind of hook you up. And um, I think Chris said something like onwards into hell and off we went. And uh, no, it was an amazing experience. It was a lot smoother than I thought it was going to be. But I did, I did didn't almost wimp out, but I definitely got a little bit nervous up there. <laughs> And Chris, given you've been protecting and caring about peregrine falcons your whole life, how did it feel to actually, you know, fly as fast as one? Well, it's difficult to conceive, isn't it? Uh, when we watch animals, sometimes the way they behave, how quick they move and how, you know, agile they are. And we're a rather cumbersome bipedal mammal, firmly rooted on, onto the ground or occasionally swimming. And I'm not terribly good at swimming, so I try to avoid that. But um, yeah, I've always dreamed of flying. I suppose I've got that Peter Pan complex. All of my favourite animals are winged in one way or another, butterflies, dragonflies, and of course the birds. And, you know, it's always, I'm always excited by the fact that, you know, peregrine falcons have made the recovery. They were very rare birds when I was a kid. Um, they now nest in the town that when I, where I grew up as a kid. You know, I would never have been able to predict that recovery and, and that success. But you have to pinch yourself because every time you look up and see one, you're looking at the fastest animal on the planet. They can stoop at speeds of in excess of 200 miles an hour for short periods during their stoop when they're plummeting down to... Um, to knock their prey out of the sky. So, yeah, it was good. It was all over too quickly. I think that the, those sort of experiences are so you know overwhelming for the senses that you need to do them a few times to get your senses under control so you can really take in the experience because I think it, our, our zip lasted a, a minute or something. It felt like about 10 seconds because it was so exciting, really, really thrilling. Uh, I didn't predate anything on the way down. I was slightly disappointed. I wasn't able to predate a, a vegan cake or something like that <laughs> on in peregrine fashion but anyway it was great fun really really great fun good idea from beast was there a moment for you meg that really stood out in the series is kind of that when you think back that's one that you'll definitely remember yeah i think i mean there's so many highlights amongst all of it really i mean i've always wanted to go i've seen puffins but i've never gone to the kind of the welsh islands where they kind of breed and in high numbers, you know, Skulkum, Skoma. Um, so that was one of my top things that I really wanted to do. And I think it was the first episode we visited Skulkum. And um, that was brilliant. That was great. I'll always remember that because I, I quite like clumsy birds. I think they're quite entertaining and endearing. And the puffins are always surprisingly small. No matter how many times you see them, you're always like, wow, you are really tiny and, and pretty adorable. Um, but I have to say, for me, the biggest, but actually, I'm sat right next to the photograph here we went to Bass Rock first when I was about nine years old I remember it was probably the first time I ever picked up a camera properly and was really thinking about wildlife photography I think that was yeah definitely you know the first instance where I was really thinking like composition birds in flight birds landing and I was really getting to grips with my camera Um, and actually this is one of the you can't see but behind me is a, a photograph of two gannets that have plummeted into the water and they've both got fish in their bills and um 
yeah, so I took it up when I was nine years old and I loved it. Going Bass Rock is home to about 150,000 gannets. So it's a really big breeding colony and on a quite a small rock, I have to say. And, and it was a really positive story because we got to go back when we were filming and um, the population had increased. And a lot of the time when we talk about you know places, revisiting places, or we talk about conservation, we're often talking about the negative and the fact that things have declined. But the fact that this population on Bass Rock had increased so much so that when we landed, we couldn't get up anywhere near as high on the rock as we would have done when I was nine years old, because quite frankly, there are too many gannets and they were you know, not very happy about you walking past, you know, their nest and they were breeding. They had a lot of had, had chicks and everything. Um, and it was just really great to go back and, and to see gannets. I think they're one of the most elegant seabirds that we've got. And they're always just, you know, it's chaos. It's absolute chaos. They're pecking each other. They're quite loud. Um, you know, they're always telling one another off if one's landed in the wrong place or you know someone's done something bad but it's just yeah I mean the smell is interesting as is any seabird colony it's quite overwhelming it does you know you are kind of playing Russian roulette with gannet guano um which I think we we definitely got shot at a few times and didn't didn't manage to miss but all in all you know for me it's one of the top wildlife spectacles in the UK Bass Rock it has to be it's brilliant and you've mentioned kind of the eco-friendly aims of the series. What other things uh, are important in kind of planning any kind of UK wildlife trip or experience to, to make sure that seeing these creatures does not endanger them further? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we're very keen, uh, Megs and I, to encourage people to go into the, the countryside, into the that, that landscape, whether they're visiting nature reserves or taking coastal walks or, or whatever, um, because it's only through proper engagement with that I think people develop a real affinity for it. And, it, and a lot of it is imperiled and does need looking after. And if people love something and they feel an attachment to it, they're far more likely to look after it. But at the same time, we equally realise that encouraging large numbers of people into what is a relatively small space, an overcrowded space in, in the UK, means that we have to behave ourselves. We all have to manage our behaviour to, to protect that the, the thing that we love so much. So that's why we have rules and regulations and that's why we have stipulations as to where you can and can't go when it comes to breeding birds and so on and so forth it's why we listen to the advice of the wardens or the um the people who are in charge of these sites um and and if they're not there then we have to conjure you know the sense ourselves to to show the animals proper respect and sometimes show some restraint megs and i are both really keen photographers but there's a time to stop. You can't just keep walking closer and closer and closer and closer. You'll end up disturbing the, the animal. So it's about, you know, learning those parameters and, and implementing them and sharing, you know, concerns with other people. If you think they're getting a bit too close or they're not doing something, then we need to um, make sure that we really politely communicate that to, to, to one another. There are new generations of of people who have found respite and solace in that environment. Uh, I welcome the fact that they're going to do that, but I sometimes worry that if they leave their litter behind or they use their disposable barbecues and don't extinguish them properly, um, we do face some quite serious threats. So it's all about, you know, education and learning, sharing ideas, being tolerant uh, and, and allowing people to, you know, maybe make a mistake, but only make it once. Um, and it's something that the conservation movement have spent a lot of time mastering. So we've not only learned how to look after other animal species, we've learned how to manage humans so the two can interact 
um, harmoniously, um, which is why when you do visit nature reserves, sometimes there are rules and regulations, no dogs, dogs on leads, don't go beyond this line, please stay in the hive, please be quiet, so on and so forth. And, and they're all there for a good reason. So if you are out and about and you're a bit of a newbie, just take note of all of those things and try and play by the rules for the benefit, not just other people, but of all of that wildlife that we love too. Yeah, but also do, do your research. You know, if there's a particular species that you really want to go out and see, you know, try and learn a little bit about it beforehand. And also there's some fantastic guided tours that you can do. Um, you know, so you take note from them either, you know, if you've got any questions, don't be, you know, it's a really amazing community and people are always happy to give advice. So if you're not sure, just do reach out um, and, and ask the best way to, you know, best place or best way to get a photograph or get an interaction with a certain animal and how best to do it that's safe for the animal and for you. Um, and, you know, these guided tours, tours are always really good, particularly if you're starting out, because then, you know, they know where all the best spots are and you can kind of be taken there. And, you know, things are shown to you that otherwise you might not have seen. And obviously that's a great way of learning, you know, how, how to judge distance and respect animals whilst adoring them from afar. And what kind of species in the UK right now should we be worried about? What, what should we be looking at right now? I mean, I don't think there's room for complacency anywhere. Like Meg says, you know, when I was a kid, you know, sparrows and starlings were very common birds. We had a lot more turtle doves than we have now. I mean, there were so many species that even in my short lifetime, um, in terms of the grand scheme of things, we've seen tremendous declines. And when you think of animals which we very much took for granted, like hedgehogs, um, and we've seen 97% decline in hedgehogs in some areas, and, and declines actually accelerating in, in that species as well. I can't think the last time I saw a living hedgehog actually would have been almost a year ago. It was almost a year ago, actually. In September last year, I, I saw my, the last hedgehog. And that's, um, that would have been unthinkable when I was a child. So I, th I think that we've, got, we've reached a point where there's such pressure on our environment, either deliberate or through neglect, that we need to have no complacency whatsoever. Every scrap of space which is intact and offering a resource for life should be protected. Uh, we need to, you know, restore, reinstate, reintroduce um, species in, into environments. We have the technologies and the ability to do that. We need to be a lot more uh, pr proactive in, in, in that way. And we live in one of the most, most nature-denuded countries, you know, set of countries anywhere in the world. So as much as we love wildlife and we've got all our nature reserves and Megs and I romp around enjoying it, we've got to remember that it is one of the most damaged set of ecosystems anywhere on planet Earth. And that brings me no end of sadness and, you know, and motivates a real desire to, to get, you know, active, proactive, you know, good quality conservation working everywhere. And that's not just on nature reserves. That's people's back gardens. That's the local park. That's the school ground. That's the car park in, in, in your place of work. All of these places could offer a resource. And we know how to adapt them to make that resource work. So we, this is the time for us to really get on with it. Meg, do you have anything you wanted to kind of add about the species that you're concerned about? I mean, it's how long have you got? <laughs> it's um, you know an incredibly long list for a variety of different reasons. And I mean, I could list off individual species, but I won't because we will be here for forever. Um, you know, hedgehogs are a big one, Britain's favourite mammal. You know, that's 
terrifying that it's declined, you know, 97% in some areas. We look at seabird colonies. Seabirds are incredibly important indicators for the health of the oceans. And yet we know that, you know, with these puffins, that they're really struggling because sand eel populations are declined massively. We know that there's problems with microplastics and seabirds are feeding their young more and more plastic. And we're seeing a massive decline in those colonies, which is, you know, seen mirrored amongst populations of different species and mirrored around the coasts of the UK. You know, we know that things are struggling massively. You know, the swallows and swifts, great. It's so exciting when they come every year, but are, are there as many as there were the year before? Ultimately, you know, not, not really the case. You know, we look at our butterflies, we look at our bumblebees, we look at our insect populations that have just been absolutely decimated. You know, there is nowhere near the amount of insects that, you know, I remember as a kid. And ultimately, even that is nowhere near the amount of insects that Chris could probably remember as a kid. And ultimately, that's something called shifting baseline syndrome. Um, And that's quite an interesting kind of phenomenon that, you know, young people judge or any person really judges populations by their own lifetime you know, and says, okay, well, that's normal because it's always been that way. Or, you know, oh, that's increased since that point. But you've got to remember that these animals have been here long before we were born as individuals and, and hopefully will be here long, long after. And we can't keep judging animals and their abundance by the parameters of our own lifetimes. You know, we live, you know, 80 years if we're lucky, um, you know, and ho- and populations are going to fluctuate within that time. But we need to you know, make sure that we, you know, not just trying to stabilise it within our lifetimes and not just thinking about the short term of the 80 years, but we're thinking of the long term 100, 200, 500 years so that we can, you know, protect these species that are struggling. And the time is now, ultimately, unfortunately, we don't have that time. We don't have that time to waste talking about how to save it. We know how to save it. We've got the solutions. We're ready to do it. We've just got to get on. And of course, like you've mentioned, part of that is actually going out and experiencing nature, because once you've had that experience, you can then fight for it and you've got that kind of motivation I know we all should have the motivation because it's UK wildlife but actually there's something about seeing it that brings it all kind of into a new perspective yeah I think so it's that sense of ownership and engagement which is you know so important and we saw that developing in many people who may have had a casual interest in the natural world before but during lockdown they they had that little bit of extra time um, and they were able to, you know, stop and look at things that they'd seen and stop and listen to things that they'd heard. And it piqued their interest. And all of a sudden, you know, the sound of common birds singing, robins and blackbirds and song thrushes in the cities was bringing them an enormous amounts of joy. And and what makes and I hope is that in, in the aftermath of that, you know, if there's a, a plan to cut down some trees at the end of the street where those blackbirds were singing so beautifully during that period and, and brought those people so much joy. They might say, well, do you know what? Let's find somewhere else to put those houses or that car park and, and protect the trees. So it is that very much that passion that we want people to, you know, to excite, but then to use creatively when it comes to conservation. We, we're in a climate and ecological emergency and 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 it is an emergency and and that means that we need immediate action and so you know an action we can all do our own little bit but collectively we need to do a lot more and and as a consequence the bigger the team the better the result and and that's again why we're you know in in our program we didn't go anywhere exclusive 
So we didn't go anywhere where people can't go. It was really important to us that they could put their, you know, bootprints in ours and experience the same thing. Um, we wanted to show that we do have, despite all of its uh, problems, you know, some fantastic places to go in the UK to encounter wildlife. Um, and, and we want people to go and, and, and do that. But, but as it makes us said, you know, we, we both recognise the real and, and very urgent need to act now to protect it. Otherwise, we're going to lose things. We could lose things like hedgehogs. It's, it's, I, I know it's almost unbelievable, um, but, it, but it's, it's really becoming a, a potential reality that we would lose what were, in my youth, common animals that we took for granted, and they'll be gone and gone forever. And of course, you know, you go up to the lake district to see, you know, an elusive animal, the red squirrel, and and I've never seen one. It's one of those things that my parents will always say, oh, you know, there used to be loads. Um, And I know, you know, the stories, but I've never actually seen one. What can I do? What can people do to kind of get the best chance of seeing that kind of iconic um, animal? Well, red squirrels is a difficult one because, of course, the problem with them is that they've been outcompeted by the grey squirrels, which is highly invasive. Um, when they came into the UK, out competing for everything, pretty much food and um, you know territory. They're quite territorial when it comes to the reds. So um, you know, unfortunately, you know, the reds are, are clinging on to some small areas. You've got Cumbria, some you know areas in Wales, the Isle of Wight, and of course up in kind of the Cairngorms in northern Scotland. The red squirrels are, are all around there, and I think there's you know some initiatives to kind of bringing them back at the moment, but it's still kind of an ongoing process, I think, because it is, it is difficult because the grey squirrels are so prominent now in our landscape and, and do cause kind of such a problem. But other than kind of going to those places at the moment, you know, I, I'd love to say that the reds will be back in, in high abundance all over the UK within my lifetime. Whether that will be a reality or not, I don't know. Um, but, you know, as it, as it stands, it's definitely not the case. And you kind of have to go to where those last populations are holding on and hopefully they do hold on. And in terms of um, listeners who are kind of really keen to to get out there and see some more UK wildlife, but perhaps, you know, living in cities, London, might not have the kind of opportunities to visit the wild landscapes that we've got in Scotland or the north. What are kind of the three things that you would recommend a listener does in order to see UK wildlife at home this autumn? Well, if you're lucky enough to have a garden, um, you can modify that garden to make it more appealing to wildlife and it will come. Um, you know, we, we on our self-isolating bird club, Meg and I put together with a couple of other uh, folks last year, encouraged people to put an old washing up bowl in, in their lawn as the world's tiniest pond. And hundreds, not thousands of people did this. And frogs and newts and dragonflies turned up and, and things came to bathe in it and things came to drink from it, including hedgehogs, I might add. Um, and, and, and again, you know, that just a, something as simple as an old washing up bowl improves your resource for wildlife if you're lucky enough to have a garden. Um, if you don't have a garden, uh, just rest assured that our cities, um, even in the hearts of those cities, the most urban parts of them, are filled full of life. That we've got, we're really lucky in the UK. We have good met- metropolitan parks, and um, and there's invariably, therefore, there's large trees there. Good bird populations, invertebrate populations. If the council are for, for, you know far thinking, then they've got wildflower areas or areas of unmown grass now, which are, are, are profitable too. Then another good one is cemeteries. A lot of cemeteries are quiet places for obvious reasons. People go there to revere their their lost relatives. Some of them are overgrown. 
and and they become uh, repositories for wildlife. And certainly in London and you know Manchester, thinking you know places like this, Liverpool, those overgrown cemeteries are fantastic places for things like foxes and and, and badgers and breeding birds. So they're another uh, good source. And then there were plenty of urban nature reserves um, because we've been very conscious of the fact that that urban population wants and needs access to the natural world. And again, I can say hand on heart that, you know, there are some really, really good urban nature reserves, which are packed full of surprising things. Um, most notably, I think, because many of our larger cities are based on rivers because they required access um, to bring in goods. And they also required uh, drinking water before it was piped. I'm talking going back thousands of years, of course. Um, but rivers are great conduits for wildlife. Anything moving follows that river, anything from an otter to a migrating osprey. So our cities being on those rivers means that they're often at a confluence of, of routes across the landscape, if you like, that wildlife follows. Uh, you've got our railway lines going into all of our cities and the railway embankments, again, are quiet places where people um, cannot go, and, and but wildlife can. And, and wildlife uses this network of routes to get in and out of our city. So there's never an excuse for thinking that I live in the middle of town, I can't get out to the countryside, I won't see any wildlife. Uh, look up, you'll see peregrine falcons and kestrels flying overhead. And, and look down and you'll see some fabulous plants growing, you know, in that broken piece of tarmac around the bus shelter. There's there's always something living there. and and And, and most of it you know it's pretty fascinating when you get down on your hands and knees thank you for listening to this episode of instant genius that was chris packen and megan mccubbin if you want to know more about the wildlife you can see in the uk across the coming months check out autumn watch on bbc iplayer or to hear them tell me more about wildlife head over to the instant genius extra podcast the october issue of bbc science focus magazine is out now pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com 